Welcome to another episode of the Global Surgery Series. I'm Cynthia Choya, and I'm here with Josh Wiederman, my co-host, and our two guests today, Dr. Koch and Dr. Netterville. Today, we'll be discussing sustainability in global surgery. Our first guest is Dr. James Netterville. He has more than 20 years of experience working in global outreach and has participated in more than 30 surgical education trips to Kenya, Nigeria, Uganda, and Haiti. His global efforts are widely recognized as models for sustainable global outreach. Thanks for being here with us, Dr. Netterville. It's an honor to be with you guys. Our second guest is Dr. Wayne Koch, who is an otolaryngologist and clinician scientist he has participated in many short-term medical projects and trips to Ecuador, Peru, the Dominican Republic, Bolivia, and Cameroon. He is passionate about sustainable education paradigms and established the Cameroon Head and Neck Fellowship through the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons at Mbingo Baptist Hospital. Welcome. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Well, thank you both for being here, Jim and Wayne. When I lived in Ethiopia and was doing my best to to train and create sustainability in a new residency program, people would constantly remind me how well the two of you have created sustainability over the decades and, and how your teachings have really shaped a lot of uh, head and neck surgery within the African continent. And your work speaks volumes um, on paper and, and in the words and minds of, of many people around the world. So it's a real honor to have the both of you here together. So thank you. I would love to start just trying to understand the thought process when you first got started in your global work um, because in other podcasts, we've taught our audience that global surgery as a defined academic discipline really didn't come up until 2015. But you guys had both worked much prior to that and created something real. So starting with, with Jim, I would love to kind of hear your thought process when you were first deciding to go abroad and to create a sustainable environment. How did that organically come up? Um, what kind of conversations, who did you meet with? What was it like? You know, this goes back to uh, people ask Wayne and I at times, young doctors, so how did you create a successful career? What was your plan? And none of us sat in kindergarten and decided this is what we were going to do. You know, we are, are very fortunate to take advantage of opportunities that present in our life. Now, Dr. Koch and I both were raised in an environment of service. Our families trained us as young children that we, we need to give back to the world. That's our, our kinship. And so even as a young father and mother, I was taking my children back and forth to Honduras, not for medical outreach, but to build houses and to, and to serve. And it was more of a not building a sustainable program, but just serving at that moment. So I was fortunate that in 1999, I re-encountered a Dr. Henry Farah who I had actually met when I was a college student going into architecture. And he came to lecture at Lipscomb University in 1973 when I was a freshman to talk about his medical outreach in Nigeria. And then I went off to not become an architect, but to become a physician. And then as I had a neck surgeon and worked at Vanderbilt. And then amazingly, 20 years later, this Dr. Fira sent me a referral from rural Tennessee for a thyroidectomy. 
And then after we talked on the phone, I said, are you, could you possibly be the same man that lectured 20 years ago in my college class? And then he said, yes, and I desperately need you to go to Africa. So there, this window of opportunity opened with this wonderful man, and I naively took six of us, and we went to Africa for two weeks and just to serve, to operate. But once you go into these environments, you then begin to see, well, we just operated on 100 major head and neck tumors in two weeks, and we're leaving and we've helped these wonderful hundred families and these wonderful hundred patients, but what have we left behind? So as a academic surgeon who's dedicated to making you know, education a priority, you start thinking right then, how can I make this what was a point of care situation into a sustainable program? Well, that that's beautiful. And uh, we've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast that in global surgery, the paths aren't always illuminated for you. And often a door will open suddenly and it's kind of the best opportunity just to walk through it and to see what's on the other side. And that's kind of what you did, um, you know, by going over and experiencing that for the first time. And uh, what Wayne, was your introduction to global surgery a kind of similar happenstance? Tell me your story. No, a little different. Um, of course, medical mission work in the faith-based community has been going on for a couple hundred years. And so I was raised in a church setting where we kn- knew about that and um, I read biographies and admired people who had left everything in the early 1900s um, to go to Africa or the Far East and actually live the rest of their lives as physicians caring for people. So the uh, Christian Medical, it's now the Christian Medical and Dental Association, had a um, short-term mission program. When I was a resident, I knew about that. And actually, my first trip, the one to Ecuador that Cynthia mentioned, was when I was a chief resident at uh, Boston University in Tufts. That was something I'd wanted to do since I went to medical school just to see something different in the world and, as Jim said, um, contribute to um, the well-being of people. And uh, so I I went on that trip. And as it happened, my wife was going to go with me, and we found out she was expecting our lovely daughter, Rachel, at that time. And so she stayed home and I went. And I didn't put my toe back in the water, although I wanted to for 15 years. Um, When my kids were young teenagers, I took them all with me to the Dominican Republic. And uh, on on another um, two-week trip by that same group that I'd gone with 15 years earlier. The sustainable part of it uh, was manifest in that organization by going back to the same locations each year. And um, similar to, I think, Jim's experience, having people on the ground who are sponsoring that program gives quite a bit of continuity. Um, But there was still this, um, the same feeling that, that Jim expressed. We would go and do cases and leave and wonder what happened when we left. I came across a book called When Helping Hurts. Um, one of the authors is Brian Fickert. 
and uh, that book is more broad than healthcare outreach, but um, but looked at how people from developed settings can come in and disrupt inadvertently what happens in resource-limited settings uh, and, and pointed out a couple of problems that I had observed in my short-term trips. And we can talk about that later, but um, as a result of that, I, I started to look around and see what was out there and I discovered PACS, which Cynthia mentioned, it's the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. And this is a group that um, has started residency programs in Africa, mostly led initially by full-time uh, missionary physicians who started U.S.-style academic programs in general surgery. And so I went to Cameroon in 2008, and I got my first taste of what PACS does um, at Mbingo Baptist Hospital. And I was sold. The, the um, efforts made by that organization to adjust uh, for problems that occur in short-term, in-and-out kind of exposures, uh, I think are comprehensive and well thought through and effective and successful. Um, and, and so everything I've done since then has been in that context. So even though I'm doing short-term, uh, two-week mostly visits, I'm doing it always in the context of an organization that has a, a lot of interaction and a, a lot of sustainable qualities that I'd be glad to talk about as we go forward. And thank you for that introduction. You, you brought up a point in which we've talked about in previous podcasts in a little bit of detail. You know, when we look at global surgery as an entire community, we see it as a pyramid. And, and at the bottom of the pyramid that has the biggest uh, volume of participators are these short-term surgical trips that can go for a couple of weeks. And there are many people across the world that can do that. But as you get higher up in the pyramid, there are fewer people that are involved um, all the way up to the tip of, of policymakers, you know, in the WHO, et cetera. Um, but I see what, what you and Jim do as near the tip of the pyramid, and so few people do it to create long-term, sustainable academic programs. Um, but would you mind mentioning uh, both Wayne and, and Jim, as you've experienced over time, could you give examples or maybe even generalizations of what you've noticed short Comings in short-term surgical trips could be from your experience, Jim. If you if you have one off the top, you can start. You know, we most of the physicians in the United States around the world have great big hearts, and they want to make a difference in the world. And so, when an opportunity comes up to go to a third-world country and serve, you know, most of those don't have a lot of deep roots, so to speak. And a lot of well-intentioned folks, starting with small groups that run over with a, a bag full of antibiotics and uh, see everybody in a village and try to help with their basic health care. And so we're, we are attracted to go into that setting very quickly when the opportunity arises. And as Wayne was saying, some of those trips don't have a lot of pre-planning or a lot of... Uh, post-planning and it you know there are just so many of these trips around the world where you know even organizations such as medical student organizations arrange for folks to go in the beauty of that is all of us that go we have a phenomenal experience of serving others 
Uh, but then you immediately have to say, what have we left behind and how are we going to make a real difference? And so the paper that was, you know, written several years ago, the six cardinal sins of, of medical outreach, that's my, that's kind of the summary of what it said, you know, as the people ride in on a white horse, do a whole bunch of surgery, take a whole bunch of pictures, come home to where their country, maybe the United States and show what they've done, but they're really, they didn't really engage the regional doctors. They didn't really arrange for post-operative or long-term follow-up. They didn't really arrange for long-term relationships. And so that's where we are really criticized in some of maybe the immature efforts at these trips. And so many of those still function like that from very, very well-meaning people. And I wholeheartedly agree. And it's not the mistake of those giving their service. It's a, a lack of organization, maybe from a societal standpoint. Wayne, have you, have you noticed similar things or, or add to that? Yeah, so um, so the book I mentioned outlines some other things. There's also a book called When Healthcare Hurts. I, I um, Seeger is the author of that one. Um, and, and so they pointed out a couple of things. One is a socioeconomic disruption. So if you go into a setting and charge nothing for care, and there are local doctors who are trying to make a living, um, and everybody runs to see the American doctor and, and get free care, um, that can be a significant problem, both um, in interrupting confidence in those local physicians and also the expectation that you might need to pay for care. So there's an economic component, and we have to be careful with that and bingo. One of the things that we try to do and one of the good things that is done there is that the Cameroon Baptist Convention runs all of the administrative part and sets the prices and so on. And they're paying their nurses and staff, um, even though they're not paying us, and need to make some money. So it's a Christian charity hospital in some people's minds, but it's a business in other people's minds, just like we have at home. Um, and so you need to understand what's going on uh, economically. Um, you can undercut the, the care of trusted physicians. When I was in um, Bolivia, one of the doctors that we were working with came up and said, would you look in my ear? And I did. And he said, um, do I have a perforation? And I said, yeah. And he said, I thought so. And, and he had gone to a local friend of his who was a local otolaryngologist and the local ENT had said, no, you're, you know, I fixed your perforation. There's still a membrane there. And uh, I had interrupted inadvertently a, a trust relationship um, in a way that I would, I stumbled into it. Um, and then I left that place. So some of that working with the, the local system is another problem uh, that can happen. Um, one of the questions that Cynthia mentioned was uh, in the introduction I got was about sustainability of equipment and supplies. Uh, and, and so we try to do things in a way that encourages local vendors uh, to have a business model that makes money for them and not bring everything in donated. That's another way that things can be disrupted. And, and then I think we're gonna talk about research later. One of the problems that happens even in our uh, Zoom calls and efforts at global outreach is that if a Westerner speaks, 
everybody else in the room becomes silent because we're perceived often to be the authority. And, and the same can happen in research. We need to be very careful to give the others, and especially folks whose home we're visiting, um, precedence in not just who gets authorship, but what research is done, uh, how it's done, what the sensitivities are culturally. I found out that in Bingo Baptist Hospital, it was difficult to ask questions that the IRB there approved about HPV-related head and neck cancer for reasons that your listeners, I'm sure, can imagine. Um, and it, you just have to give precedent to the locals, folks who are living in that environment um, and know the culture as to how you do a lot of what we do together. Yeah, and again, very beautifully stated, and and I bet Wayne and Jim feel similarly on this, but those experiences I also felt in, in Ethiopia while I was there, and I realized that the more I understood about the contextual and social economic environment, the more I realized how my presence was disruptive. And it's, it's impossible for people in short-term surgical trips who only go over for a week or two to really understand that disruption because understanding the cultural environment takes a very long time of experience. Or you have a mentor like Jim and Wayne um, letting you know what they've learned over their lifetime. So all very interesting. And, and Cynthia, I think you have a question. Yeah, I think you're all really getting at uh, the elements of sustainability by commenting on the shortcomings of short-term surgical trips. Um, but can you give us your broad definition of what sustainability entails in global surgery? Yeah, so I, I did write down a couple of things because I saw that question. It's a great one. Um, and, and so I'm particularly for people who are who still have a foot in the um, world on this side of the Atlantic and are then going elsewhere, what's done has to be done at, by a team when a project or an initiative has a single um, proponent who drives the beginning of it and the vision of it, and that person is taken out of the picture, as we all will be someday, um, things crumble. And so sustainable means self-reproducing and a group project, not an individual project. One of the interesting things that's happened at PAX, I, I was just on our, uh, our annual business call yesterday. Um, almost half of the faculty of the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons are now Africans who graduated from the program and have stayed at the places where they trained as, or moved to another place as faculty. So that's an example of the sustainability of self-reproduction. And then um, local authorization. Africa is changing and the quality of healthcare is, is improving and places like Kenya are starting to increase their scrutiny over what we do as outsiders coming in and appropriately so. You can't come and do surgery in the U.S. just by saying, I know how to do this surgery and here I am. And, and you can't do that in Kenya anymore either. Um, in Cameroon, we work um, through something called the Baptist Health Institute, which has been recognized by the Cameroonian government as a uh, organization that is authorized to do 
uh, graduate medical education, surgical education. And so working with the, in the, in the local context with local, under local authority. Um, and then the last thing I wrote down was to be sustainable. It needs to be affordable economically. Eventually it needs to be self sustaining, self-sufficient, which means people need to be able to afford to pay for the care that they're getting in a way that at least keeps the lights on. That's my list. For sure. Thank you. That was a great definition. Um, what about you, Dr. Netterville? How, how do you define it for yourself? Well, Wayne was quite eloquent in how he laid all that out. You know, the, you go back to the real core of what we're trying to do here. You want to go, I, I train young doctors in my program for five years or fellowship for six years and pour into them all that time so that they can go out and practice independent of me and do a great job. Although education is something that goes on forever, isn't it? So in any of these programs, a simple definition of sustainability is we go and pour into these third world areas that need maybe some of our skills and our experience. And the whole goal is after a number of years, they don't need us anymore. They carry on and carry on the education uh, as the professors instead of us. And so that sustainability is at an education level, at a helping them, as Wayne said, to uh, have appropriate facilities and work within their setting so that uh, it is a affordable care. So it's become apparent that education is one of the foundations of sustainability, like you just mentioned, Dr. Netterville. Um, the two of you have co-authored a paper on the role of subspecialty training um, in developing countries as a means to sustainability, specifically with regards to the fellowships based in South Africa and Cameroon. Can you discuss the impact that previous fellows have had on the landscape of head and neck cancer care in their home countries? Well, this is a place where we have to uh, shout out to Johan Fagan, who is a good friend, both of Jim and mine. Uh, Johan is the, the chair, I believe now at uh, Cape Town University and uh, partnering with uh, Mrs. Stortz, who funded his head and neck fellowship program. He's trained, I believe he's up to number 12 or 13, African head and neck surgeon in a one-year fellowship setting in Cape Town. Uh, and all of his trainees have gone back to local, to home country, uh, and many of them are the academic leaders in their home nations, certainly in, in um, Ghana, Senegal, e Ethiopia, now Madagascar, Kenya, uh, and um, Uganda, at least, and, and probably others. Uh, and so Johan's been doing this uh, as just part of his regular work at Cape Town doing a fellowship, but intentionally uh, helping to spread expertise around the continent. Um, my, my program, our program in Cameroon had that in mind. I knew about Johan's work uh, and um, we've, we're now on our fifth fellow. The first uh, is a fine surgeon who had done his general surgery training in Kenya at Kijabi Hospital. His name is uh, Chege Macharia, and he did a one-year fellowship and is back now in uh, Kenya at Kijabi and is thinking about uh, and planning to be part of a faculty for a second 
PACS Associated Head and Neck Fellowship. So he's making a, a, a great impact and starting to um, do his own training. Our, our second fellow, uh, Dr. Masella, is in Ethiopia and is in a uh, government hospital practicing, very busy clinical practice. Our, our third, Dr. Marco Fanrico, is in Madagascar. He, he's also a general surgeon and has started now a PACS program with several other general surgeons there. So he's doing head and neck and general surgery and starting to train general surgeons there. And our current fellow, Dr. Kiafone, is a graduate of the program in uh, otolaryngology in Kenya and is now getting her head and neck fellowship uh, training in bingo and uh, is part of the Cameron Baptist Convention hospital system and will stay there, hopefully to continue to participate in our program as a faculty member. So um, those two programs, the, the especially the Cape Town program and our program are um, training people with a American style one year head and neck uh, surgical fellowship and then um, getting them out into the academic settings where they came from to um, reproduce their expertise with others that they're training. And Jim, I wanted to ask you, there is all of this wonderful training going on at a fellowship level locally in Africa and in all of those participants that stayed in country or at least in the continent. Do you feel like there is a particular benefit to training physicians locally within Africa in this uh, circumstance, rather than bringing them abroad for, for fellowships in similar contexts? Do you, do you have an opinion on that? You know, after going, starting in 99 and going and operating, and then after a couple of years, I reached out to the regional otolaryngologist in Nigeria and said, how many of you all would like to come and spend this two week with us? And so for three or four or five years, uh, we had a number of otolaryngologists coming and got to be very close friends. And then they would bring their patients with them. And then they would take their patients home. And we were training in their setting and their resource setting. And then at our academy meeting, Wayne and I have helped a lot over the years in the African caucus at the academy meeting each year, getting together as many of the African surgeons of all otolaryngology types that come to our academy meeting. And one lady stood up a few years ago, in the late maybe 2008, 2009, and was kind of bounced her hand on the desk a couple of times to get our attention and said, when you all want to train us, don't come to my country and operate without me. Don't bring me to the United States and show me all of your fancy toys that I can't have. Come to my hospital and operate with me on my patients and help me learn to do a better job. So, that was kind of, she gave me some real marching orders in life uh, to how to listen attentively to what they want. I then, you know, I had logged in, tried to then do kind of needs assessment in several countries, both Nigeria and in Kenya. So after that, I contacted and got to know Joyce Swanee much better, who was one of Dr. Johan Fagan's fellows, and she's the chief of head and neck in Kenya. She's one of the, has been chairman of the Department of Otolaryngology in Nairobi and is chief of head and neck and functions 
at Kenyatta Hospital, their large private hospital. And I asked her, I said, how can we live this out with you guys and, and come over and help you train in your setting? And so for the last uh, 13 years, we've been working collaboratively with her and her faculty. And I asked them, what do you want? What do you need? That's a simple, we, we call it needs assessment now. We've got all this nomenclature that confuses things a little bit. We just say, how can we help you? What do you need as far as your skills, your education, your equipment? Uh, and let's plan these trips. And so I went to their hospital and tried to do it in their setting. The first time I took three uh, senior professors uh, from academic programs in the United States, and we got to Kenyatta Hospital, and they'd promised us three ORs for the three professors for three straight days, and we would have nine operative days. And it turns out Kenyatta Hospital, of a several thousand bed hospital, has 12 operating rooms. That's all it has. And we received permission to use two operating rooms the first day and none after that. So trying to go into their setting uh, and teach them the way they wanted was unsuccessful. Now, Wayne has a more specific hospital that they can really uh, orchestrate and have plenty of time. So after that, we found a different hospital that allowed us to have three operating beds for nine straight days or 27 operating days. And, and it works out very well for the Kenyans to come and, and bring all their patients to that hospital. Uh, and they are absolutely thrilled that they have so much operating time to get this done. So yes, training in their setting is very important, but it's also important to allow them to come and work with us some. And we have a program in uh, Samuel, uh, is coming from Kenya to spend six weeks with us in August and September and then go to the academy meeting. And, and it opens their eyes quite a bit. They, they see how we function at a very high level in a quaternary tertiary uh, head and neck service in the United States. And they can take some of those points and go back and improve their system as well. So I think there's a real blend, but the vast majority of this training should be done in their home country and their home setting with their patients. Very well said. Uh, Wayne, would you would you tend to agree with the sentiment that, you know, uh, it's important to teach locally, but also be exposed to what the world offers from a specialty? Yeah. So um, so Jim outlined a couple of things that um, that make a difference in terms of the training. One is what resources are available so, for example, robotic surgery is not something that's going to come to Africa soon. One of the big debates that still goes on is around free flap reconstruction, which while technologically people can be trained to do it and have equipment brought in, is probably not a business model that is going to make money for local hospitals. Uh, so there's those kinds of concerns. Um, one of the topics that I'm sure you've dealt with on the podcast and thought about is brain drain. One of the big problems in Africa is it's not that there aren't good medical schools. There are, um, and there, it's not that there aren't smart people. They're just as smart and smarter than we are. I've met some of the best medical students and doctors I've ever met uh, in Africa. Um, but the pay that African doctors get 
is just a world different than what the same person could make if they came to Europe or uh, Dubai or to the United States. Um, and so that allure is real. And, and we can become paternalistic and suggest that we shouldn't bring people to the U.S. because of that allure, and they'll somehow be seduced. Uh, every African surgeon I've met has somebody close to them, a family member often, who lives in Chicago or Washington, D.C. or someplace. And cell phones, there's, there's no mystery anymore of um, what's available in different societies. But PAX particularly looks for people, and, and Johan does this as well when he selects his fellows, looks for people who philosophically are committed to giving back to their home. Um, and and uh, that, I think, is an important aspect of how we plan our training. We, we hope to be sustainable and helpful in places where there's need by um, partnering with people who already have that vision for their home country um, and, and helping them get a leg up to excellence. Now, in regards to summing up everything you guys have talked about today, we've been asking the question of how to create something sustainable and in what environment should we do it? But both of you mentioned before that we weren't really sure with the old model of, of short-term surgical trips. We weren't really sure if we were doing uh, anything positive uh, or neutral or negative for that matter. What have you done in your work globally to know that you're actually helping in a meaningful way? Have you been able to measure that subjectively or objectively? And uh, Jim, why don't we start with you? But again, you know, if a if somebody that is kind of heart wants to try to get involved in medical educational outreach and they want to listen to this podcast, what advice can we give them? I think that's the core here. And so you've got to, you know, the best thing is to find an area that has a need and then work with that group to find out in their needs assessment, what do they need? What kind of educational needs do they have? What is the level of education they have already? And so when you go into these settings, and certainly a two-week trip where you operate on 100 people and you do a lot of good for those 100 people is an amazing thing. But if you never went back to that area and there was no follow-up, that's not really, you know, we, we can direct our efforts better and make it more sustainable. So in our work in... Uh, that I have done in Nigeria and now through Chad Zender in Uganda and our work in uh, Kenya, you know, it is planned way ahead of time with the regional surgeons to direct the, the and operate and treat the patients that they have needs for. So like in, in one, a simple program in Kenya, they had many laryngectomy patients and they'd never had laryngectomy rehabilitation. So working with the Blumsinger Corporation with some donations and with several of our speech therapists. Uh, they started going with us every year. We brought one of the Kenyan surgeons for a six-week intensive training in how to use tracheal soft gel prosthesis. 
And then going back over a seven-year, eight-year period now, a very significant number of laryngectomy patients now have a laryngeal voice with tracheoesophageal prosthesis. And we then, how do you assess that? Well, thank goodness now, most people in Africa have a cell phone. And so I have medical students that run our medical follow-up outreach and trying to do you know, assessment of our successes in several different areas. And one of them is calling patients every six months. And we end up having anywhere from a 50 to 70% phone answer rate uh, in these patients and, and looking at their long-term outcomes. In the laryngectomy patients, they're all followed in Nairobi. So we have a very high rate of outcomes follow-up of them and a very successful uh, outcome from that. So that's kind of a simple needs assessment target what they need, help them, and then give them the tools and training to, to go forward. In the rest of our assessment, you know, you're trying to say, are we making, are we doing a good job with the patients? One of the hallmarks of these books that Wayne has mentioned and papers that have been written is, are we delivering the same level of care in these third world countries as we deliver in the United States? Well, of course, we can't quite get there but it's the burden on us is to get as close as possible to that. And it would be tragic to go over and deliver substandard care and, quote, let medical students do major operations because we can get by with it in Africa. And that's where we've been criticized, so to speak. So we look at uh, on each of the long term trips and short terms and long term outcomes, we look at patient outcomes and the thyroidectomy, the prodotectomy, the laryngectomy, their neck dissections. And we have the same standards that we use in the United States, and we're following that data both through our doctors in Nairobi or through phone calls with the patients. We're also looking at education. Are these doctors, and that, that's very hard to test, uh, but we have shown that uh, it's, clinic, it's statistically significant to get subjective outcomes from these doctors. What were your skill sets before? this educational interaction and what are your skill sets after this educational interaction? And then how has it changed your practice over six months or one year or two years? And, you know, one of the comments that was made on one of our last trips, one of the surgeons said, Dr. Netterville, your group has radically changed how thyroidectomy is performed and who does it in all of Kenya. You know, we, we think of the United States and we think of our tiny little impact uh, that we have on uh, several hundred million people. But a, a wonderful example in Uganda, there is uh, 18, you know, there's about 30 million people in Uganda. There's maybe 30 old laryngologists in Uganda and uh, a team of ear surgeons going back and forth once a year has trained those doctors to create safe ear surgery. So they have impacted an entire country of 30 million people with this intermittent ongoing educational outreach. So we think that it's just a tiny impact that we have, but we can have a major impact in these entire countries because in, in Kenya, there's maybe 60 otolaryngologists in the entire country. Uh, and uh, in Cameroon, a, a small number. And so the outreach that Dr. Koch and I have done has touched most of those people over time. And Wayne, what's your perspective on, on outcomes? 
Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question and something that we've only begun to, to dip our toe into in in bingo. I think what Jim's talking about in the organization around his uh, his trips and following up on outcomes is exemplary. I commend it. One of the I've I've had twelve of our residents go with us to Cameroon, and I ask each of them uh, to participate in a clinical project. So we've done a couple of projects that are more uh, molecular research, looking at demographics and patterns of disease and differences that what we see in the U.S. But we have done one project recently that has a more of a of a capacity building and prioritization aspect to it. And the, the first author is Melina Winden, uh, and it's in the Laryngoscope online uh, journal, not in the print journal. So it should be available to listeners. Uh, But what we did is, uh, and and actually this was sort of what was happening at home at the beginning of COVID, as you probably experienced as well, uh, elective surgery was shut down and we were asked to prioritize surgical procedures. And what schema do we use to say what procedures have priority? So we did that in bingo. We looked at all the procedures that the otolaryngology group there had done there when we were there and when we're not there for four years and categorize them as, uh, you know, immediate life-saving, level one, level two, likely to cure cancer and meaningfully extend useful life and quality of life and then so on. And, and just to categorize those and look and see what we're doing and how we're doing was helpful. The other thing that is really good and, and um, our program in Bingo, similar to what Jim has been able to fit in uh, with in Kenya and uh, what Chad and others have done. I think anytime you go back to the same place, you've had this experience, Josh, in, in Ethiopia, you go back to the same place, you're working with partners who were in hospital systems and, and they do have outcome assessment and, and continuity of care capability. So in Cameroon, we work with 32 regional outpatient clinics and six other hospitals. My partner, Dr. Acha, who's an otolaryngologist there, has trained nurse practitioners at each of these other hospitals. And so we have a network of follow-up and continuity of care, which we've not quantified, but at least it gives us a sense of how often outcomes are good and how often outcomes are less good. And so working again within a system uh, that has those sorts of interests and starting to build that sort of capacity is part of the sustainability project. Thank you for those answers. Um, I want to reiterate how meaningful it is for me and our listeners to have the two of you being candid and, and letting us know what worked for you and what didn't. And is this is a very meaningful experience for me. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for um, kind of being here and sharing with us what the experience of working in global surgery has been for the past 20 plus years for the both of you. It's been really fascinating. So thank you. You're welcome. We're glad to have been involved. It is a real honor to get to do this with you guys, especially with my dear friend, Wayne Koch, that we've been buddies for 30 years, similar hearts. I think that, you know, there's a real takeaway to this for young people listening to this. It's not something, you know, that just that they plan from their childhood. It's, op- it's open doors and opportunities that you jump through. 
but you know it is nice to instead of reinventing the wheel to start on top of where other people have accomplished something and uh, I am a little sad that I get emails very very frequently from medical students and saying Dr. Netterville the system I'm in doesn't offer opportunities is there any way that you can help me open doors for these opportunities and and uh, I wish uh, we've worked at our American Academy of Old Laryngology level to try to create a database of resources for people to get involved in these things. I, I can't take every medical student in the country with us, uh, and Wayne can't take that number. There's one other thing that's interesting to look at here is I had a meeting this week, just a few days ago there in Dallas with Mark Barveris and Michael Moore and Sarah Rohde and Adam Lugenbull and Alyssa Coliani, some of my dear friends and past fellows, and Jason Hunt was on with us from afar, trying to plan how do we continue to create you know, sustainable health care in our outreach in Kenya. And the debate was, okay, it would probably be best, is what Wayne has done, for one of us to go for two weeks every other month and just work right there in that setting of Kenyatta Hospital and not take a big group uh, and maybe that would be the very best way to train them right there in their hospital. And then Adam and several stepped back and they said, well, Dr. Nederville, look, you know, you've taken 25 people two or two times a year for many years and look at the downstream effect of what all these people have done. Look at all the, the inspiration they have and uh, all of the works that they have set up. And Wayne has inspired so many young people to go on and do things. So the people try to make it sound like this is a real simple answer. You either do this or you do that. But all of this has merit. Uh, going and working independently in a setting and just dedicating your time to training one doctor a year is a phenomenal thing. Taking a large group of people, medical students and residents and fellows, and training and inspiring them to do things is a phenomenal thing. So... I think the take-home message is all of this is good and you just have to work very hard to try to be sure that we are creating a better world for the people in that setting we go into. One last comment. One of the questions that you sent out was about a career in global surgery. Um, and I'm watching people. I, I kind of came to global surgery, at least as my main activity late in my career. My kids were grown. Um, so I didn't need to be home as a young, as a dad of young kids. Um, and my income no longer had to be uh, sustaining college educations and so on. So one of the real impediments to people being involved is um, financial. I don't know of a, of a university in which the business folks are happy fully happy that people are going and spending time giving of their time and efforts uh, without recompense. Uh, and, and so I just decreased my percent effort to allow me to sustain going to Africa 10 to 12 weeks a year, which is appropriate. But the point is um, you can choose global surgery as an academic career, and there is some philanthropy available and, and, and maybe some grants available, but it is not an easy path, yeah, particularly if financial constraints 
are um, a real part of, of your equation. This podcast series was created by Cynthia Choya and Josh Wiedemann. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the editing, writing, and production teams for making this episode possible. Look in the description of this episode for a link to additional resources such as a written summary of the episode and citations for references that were made to key global surgery articles. Visit headmirror.com global surgery podcast for the full list of our episodes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.